What exactly are we saying? What exactly is kindness? And a deeper level question, what are the motives behind acts of kindness? Well, I think the Bible, I think the Bible asks these kind of questions. And specifically in our character series, we're coming up on a woman named Rahab. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Joshua chapter 2. And we're going to see that her story might just be able to answer these kind of questions. Again, Joshua chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen behind me. Now, I want to do something a little different tonight. Okay, I want to do something that is, is a, li- it's a little different, and, and it's, uh, it's going to require your imagination, require a little bit of your patience. As I was studying, preparing, praying, writing for this sermon, I couldn't help but get into it, like get really into it, and love the story. And so I think, I think that the best way for us to experience this story, to see that this story is going to come alive is to do it, or to, to hear it through a first-person narrative. So what does that mean? For the next 15 minutes, I'm going to assume a role. I'm going to take on a character who is in the story of Joshua chapter 2. Again, stick with me. It's critical. You're going to see me turn and turn back. I'm going to be a different person just for a second. So stick with me. Use your imagination. I am a man from Israel. You don't know my name, and you don't know my age. But soon you'll hear about my mission. I am a spy. One of two spies commissioned by our commander-in-chief, Joshua, the son of Nun, to search out all of what we call the promised land, also known as the land of Canaan. Only 40 years before our story tonight, Yahweh, the God of Israel, my God, the God of my father, the God of his father, that God rescued my people from slavery in Egypt. And he promised us that we could have our own land where we could live according to his laws. And now those 40 years have passed. Hundreds of thousands of people have died in the desert. But here we are just east of the Jordan River. We are only a few miles from being able to cross into this promised land. And that is where we are tonight. What you are about to hear, what you are about to read is a report. A report of what I experienced as an Israelite spy. A report of who I experienced. So let's read together. Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. Okay, so that was our objective. Joshua wanted us to go view the land, to go see what it was like. But specifically, he wanted us to gather information about Jericho. Now, you have to know, Jericho is the most important city in all of the land of Canaan. It was going to be our entryway into this promised land. If we wanted to get that land, if we wanted to embrace what God had promised us, we would have to go through Jericho. 
so we were off. It was only a 15-mile journey. We left that morning. We arrived early in the afternoon. And as we approached the outskirts of the city, we couldn't help but notice the inevitable, the wall. The city wall, it was so, it was so high. It was so thick. Jericho was very well fortified. It was very strong. But as ordered, we walked in. We knew that we were doing something that no other Israelite had ever done before. Now, as we walked the streets, we found what you might call uh, like a motel or a lodge, and it was attached to the outer city wall. And this motel, this lodge, was the most natural place. It was the perfect place for us to go. Because if you wanted to learn about a city in my time, you go to a lodge. So we approached. We drew near to the door, and we began to knock. And we could hear a faint noise inside. We, it, was like, it was almost like the clinking of, of jewelry on someone's wrist or ankle. The door slowly opened. There she was, Rahab. Rahab, the prostitute. She was wearing linen clothing, makeup on her face. Her hair was down and beautiful. Her, her perfume was potent, even, even seductive. Before we knew it, we were standing at the door of a harlot house. Now, as Israelites, we, we knew that, that made us nervous. We knew that we couldn't be with Canaanite women like this. But we also knew, though the temptation would be strong, that if we wanted to find out about Jericho, if we wanted to complete our mission, that this was the place. So we cautiously, we walked in. Now we sat around a table, and at first she just, she just stared at us. And her family, her family was there too, her mother and her father, her brothers and her sisters. It was a big family. And we were just young men then. We were impatient and, and nervous. But we remembered our mission. So we began asking questions. Questions about the king. Questions about the city wall. We wanted to know, uh, questions about the gate even. We wanted to know where was Jericho especially strong. And we wanted to know tactically where Jericho might have some weaknesses. And to our surprise... She answered our questions. As we asked, she answered. Not only had we found someone who was willing to respond to us, we stumbled upon an intelligent, an unexpectedly kind woman. You see, she knew that we weren't from Jericho. She knew we were foreigners. She recognized us. She could smell it on us. And yet, she still answered. We, we continued to talk as the night set in. And all of a sudden, there was an abrupt knock on the door. <laughs> now, my heart begins to race. My palms are swe sweating, and my, my stomach is in knots. But Rahab, fully aware, says to me, says to us, go. Go upstairs to the roof. Find the stalks of flax and hide yourselves. Now, flax is just a linen, a long linen that you can hide behind. So we followed her advice. We, we we made our way atop the roof, and we hid ourselves as best as we possibly could. Before we were even fully secure, the door creaked open downstairs. 
there at the entrance of Rahab's house were men, agents of the king of Jericho. They were there to arrest us. You see, somebody tipped us off. Somehow the king heard about spies of Israel in his city. Surely they were going to kill us. You can read about it in the report. They were speaking to Rahab on behalf of the king. And we see it in, in verse 3. Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. We had been found out. We immediately panicked. This was it. Our mission had failed, and our very lives were over. These men were here to get us. But before we could even come up with a plan, before we could even figure out how to escape, Rahab was already responding to the agents downstairs. And this is what she had to say in verse 4. True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. At this point, I'm, I'm speechless. You've you got to be kidding me. This prostitute is trying to save our lives. She is trying to protect us. This is an unexpected and, quite frankly, a very dangerous demonstration of kindness toward us. It's more than just being hospitable. We were being saved by this woman. And sure enough, they bit the bait. The agents of the king, they headed off chasing ghosts toward the Jordan River. And here we were on top of Rahab's roof, safe and sound. But little did we know that our prostitute turned protector had a motive. She had a motive. We were still on the roof that night. We heard someone coming up the stairs, and we knew who it was. It was, it was Rahab, and we, as we looked into her eyes, we could see that she was on a mission of her own. And she began speaking to us. And the things that she had to say, the words that came out of her mouth that night were the most surprising things that I had ever, ever heard. We can read what Rahab had to say in verse 9. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you, that is Israel, has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you for the lord your god he is god in the heavens above and on the earth beneath one thing after another unbelievable we were dumbfounded here we are standing on the roof of a harlot house in a pagan city before our eyes is a prostitute who gives herself away to men for profit. She was completely shunned, completely disregarded in my culture. What she was doing was considered utterly sinful. Her trade was sinful. A woman was supposed to only be with one man, her husband, and him alone. But she wasn't doing that kind of thing. 
She was the exact opposite of what it means, what we believe to be religious, moral, and true. But what just came out of her mouth? What just came out of her mouth pushed all of that aside? What she just sounded like was a faithful and believing Israelite. How did she know? She said that she had heard. She had heard about Yahweh, the God of Israel, my God, the God of my father. She knew of his work. She knew of his rescuing my people from the land of Egypt, rescuing them from slavery, and then crossing over a dry Red Sea. She remembered only a few years ago hearing about how my God, the living God, destroyed the Amorite kings. But above that and beyond that, she said that Yahweh is the God of the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That's not just some simple, worthless phrase. Only one person had ever, ever said that exact phrase before. No one has said that except for one person, and it wasn't just any person. It was the mighty servant of God, Moses. Moses is the one who calls Yahweh the God of the heavens above and on the earth beneath. He's the only one who has said that. But here we are listening to a prostitute from a pagan city in Jericho proclaiming the truth about God in a way that only our national hero once had. Truly, she was no ordinary woman in the land of Canaan. What she just did was remarkable. She acknowledged our God as supreme. She acknowledged our God as above every other God in the land of Canaan. When you say things like that, you're saying there is no other God. She acknowledged him as the ruler of all. What did we just witness? We witnessed a profession of faith in the God of Israel. And she wasn't done. She continued to speak. And we read in verse 12, we read on, Now then, or in light of this, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Finally, (laughs) finally she had used the word that best described the way she had been treating us all along. Kindness. Kindness. In our, in our language, we call it chesed. She dealt kindly with us. Ever since we walked through her door, she had never ceased to be on our side. She was steadfast and completely loyal to us. Over against her own countrymen. How could we refuse her request? And so we gladly responded in verse 14 our lives for yours even to death if you do not tell this business of ours then when the lord gives us the land we will deal kindly and faithfully with you of course we would of course we would this woman had just saved our lives saved us from death and so we made a pact we made an agreement as we were escaping out her back window that very night, as we were getting out of her house, 
We made an agreement. We negotiated a a step-by-step plan to save her family when it came time for Israel to invade Jericho, which you can read about in detail in Joshua chapter 6. For now, I'll say that as we cross back over the Jordan River, our report to our leader, Joshua, was simple. Our, Our message was very clean. Jericho will fall. The land that God has promised us since the time of Abraham will be ours. And we couldn't help but summarize our, our entire mission using the very words of Rahab herself. And those words are recorded in verse 24. Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. We had experienced the incredible because of a prostitute named Rahab from the pagan city of Jericho. Her kindness to us, her saving our lives, protecting us, enabled us to report safely an effective and successful mission. Now ask the question, what's the point? Why would I, why, why am I standing here? Why do, why do we retell this wonderful story that I experienced? Well, there's, there's a ton of angles, there's a ton of ideas that can come in and out of this story, but one theme stands above the rest tonight, and it's this. Rahab's faith in God led her to show kindness toward us as Israelite spies. Rahab's faith, her belief in God, led her to show kindness toward us. You see, her belief In God, her beliefs about God were not empty. They led her to make deliberate and calculated choices. She demonstrated on purpose, with volition, kindness toward us. But it doesn't stop with her. You know that, right? It doesn't stop with Rahab. Her story applies to every single individual in the room. And so I can expand that idea and say that our Faith in God should lead us to show kindness toward his people. Cannot leave the building without that. Our faith in God should lead us to show kindness toward his people. It's an incredible story. A remarkable story. See, Rahab has become for us a completely unexpected and yet wonderful display of kindness. But I ask the question again, what does Rahab really teach us about kindness? Can we gain a definition of kindness from her story? What does her story teach us about a word that is so common in our vernacular? I think there are a couple things, a few things. Number one, this story shows us that Kindness is covenantal. Okay? Kindness is covenantal. Rahab uses a very important word to describe her kindness, chesed. And it's a critical word for our understanding. In the book of Joshua, what, we, what we've been in tonight, it's only used twice in our story in verse 12 and 13. But in the, in the Old Testament as a whole, it's used some 250 times. And its general meaning its general meaning, like the center of its meaning, is, is a binding loyalty. 
And we, you know, I can be honest about myself. I don't think of kindness that way. I don't think of kindness that deeply. When Rahab says that she has dealt kindly with the spies, she is saying that she has demonstrated an unwavering, unbroken, contractual loyalty to those Israelite spies. This word for kindness is also paired with another Hebrew word often, and especially in poetical books, with trustworthiness. Kindness and trustworthiness kind of come together quite a bit. So to show a kindness toward others also includes a certain kind of trustworthiness, a certain kind of reliability, the kind of reliability that you would expect from your spouse. That kind of reliability, that kind of covenant, that kind of dependability between two people that are that close is the kind of action that we are called to do as Christians. So one, kindness is covenantal way deeper than we typically give that word credit for. Two, kindness is tangible. Okay, first, kindness is covenantal. Second, kindness is tangible. And this one hits me the hardest. So often we limit kindness to an attitude or a way of thinking. Be, be kind to one another. But what we've done with this word is we have said to be kind equals to be nice. To be kind equals just, just to be nice. We grew up hearing things like this, but this story is different. Rahab's kindness is different. She didn't just think kindly of others. She actually did things, tangible things, that demonstrated her kindness, her loyalty. She protected the spies from death, provided a way of escape. Her kindness was not quiet. Her kindness was not quiet. In contrast, it was observable. She had the kind of kindness that was observable. And so that begs the question, the question that scares me. Would you be able to look into my life would you be able to observe me and say that I am a long-term and faithful person dedicated to showing kindness to those around me? That's a convicting question. Can you look at me and say that that's who I am, that I am defined by acts of kindness, demonstrable, observable acts of kindness? What the answer to this question might lead to is to realize that kindness is, has to be uncomfortable. A true um, embrace of, of kindness is going to be uncomfortable. I don't feel like helping, say, let's say someone down, down the, the hall in my apartment complex moves in, or someone down the street uh, in your neighborhood. I don't feel like spending the next three hours picking up their couch and their king-size bed and their boxes for the next few hours. I, I, I don't feel like engaging in conversation with them to learn who they are. I don't feel like doing that. I don't feel like inviting them over on a Saturday night to make sure they feel welcome. But that is kindness. To just say hi, hope to see you around, is a failure of the definition and one that I'm guilty of. A tangible kindness looks a couple blocks down the road 
and remembers there's a widow who has been mowing her own lawn for a decade. And you going over there, me going over there, and mowing her lawn for free. That's tangible. That's observable. I could write that down on a piece of paper. That's what I mean. Is it that tangible? Kindness isn't thinking to myself, oh, man, I wish someone would help her out. Kindness is helping her out. And then to zone it in, if I can, step on some hearts. It wouldn't be comfortable to look into the eyes of my wife or your spouse or your roommate, fill in the blank, the person that's so close to you. It wouldn't be comfortable for me to look into my, the, the eyes of my wife and apologize for neglecting my responsibilities to do my part around the house. But that's what kindness is. Kindness isn't thinking about and knowing that I should be doing the dishes. Kindness is making a, a mental contract with myself that I will do the dishes and actually do them. Maybe once a day, maybe once every day to make sure that I do not pass up 24 hours, 48 hours without doing that for her on behalf of her. Or whatever else. I mean, I, I'm sure there's husbands in the room that do the dishes and the wife doesn't need to. You, you know, this is a typical example. But what are the tangible ways for you to relate to the person you love the most? You know, I read, I read a book on marriage counseling uh, over the summer. And this guy, he's a scientist, John Gottman. And he, he basically says, and this, is go, this goes for all relationships, but he's talking about marriage. So just, just hang with me. He says, you know, the first thing to go in a marriage is, is politeness. If you look at the... If you look at the conversations between two spouses, is that how you say it? two spouses, and the conversation between one of those spouses and a stranger, you'll realize that this conversation between a spouse and a stranger is much more polite than between the two spouses. And he said that's completely backwards. If we become kind to people who are out here, but we're not kind to the people who share the same bed with us, then something's missing. Kindness that is tangible. Okay, kindness is covenantal. Kindness is tangible. And lastly, kindness is a choice we make based on our belief in God. A choice we make based on our belief in God. And I've been trying to stay here throughout the story. But for Rahab, the reality of God was the agent. It was the motive of her kindness. Her tangible acts were a choice that she made. And the source of those acts was her faith in the God of Israel that we saw in verses 9 to 11. In the same way, choices we make to be kind to one another spring from our understanding of who God is. Don't lose, please don't lose me right there. We treat others with kindness because, because we know the character of God. Who God is and what he has done for us are the ultimate motive for our behavior, the ultimate motive for our acts of kindness. And, of course, this is where the gospel of Jesus Christ comes into play. Knowing God's ultimate act of kindness on the cross, that act of kindness through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our lives should soon reflect that kind of kindness. You see, that word chesed in the Old Testament, it's used 250 times, remember? 70% of those uses were about God. It was a divine 
kindness. And that divine kindness is best seen and best displayed when Jesus spread his body to be ripped apart on our behalf so that sins might be forgiven, that we might be reconciled to a holy father. That is the definition of kindness in a picture. And so if we confess Jesus Christ as Lord, if we sing songs like Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me, it's been being, being sung for 300, 400 years, we confess that he is the supreme savior and ruler of the universe. If I say things like that, then I am a hypocrite if the truth does not affect my daily behavioral choices. So I can summarize that by saying kindness should be a product of my salvation in God. Or said slightly differently, kindness should be an attribute of the redeemed in Christ. Our faith in God should lead us to show kindness toward his people. Let's pray.